Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Often derided as an unserious cocktail ingredient, Midori is a Japanese muskmelon liqueur made by Suntory. It has a vibrant green hue and unmistakable melon flavor. Nothing else is quite like it. Those are the words of today's guest, John DeBarry, that feature in his brand new book, Saved by the Bellini, and capture the very essence of the hero ingredient in today's cocktail, the Midori Sour. And I do mean capture the very essence, both of that ingredient and the cocktail, because our subject today is very much often derided, not taken seriously, and most notable for its electric color and distinctive profile. We brought John on to discuss the Midori Sour, not only because he was called out and requested by name for this one in a previous episode by friend of the show, Jack Schramm, but because who could be better than the author of a book titled Drink What You Want, which was John's previous release in 2020. Now, John is an individual with many strings to his bow. He also regularly writes about drinks for multiple publications, He serves alongside myself as a fellow judge for the LA Spirits Awards. Shout out to those fine folks. And in what might feel like a previous lifetime, spent many years working some of New York's best bar programs, including PDT and the Momofuku Group. So beyond green sours, what exactly are we getting into today? Well, listener, pull out the pogs, slip on the Reebok pumps, and prepare for confidence curves, Studio 54, and a sprinkling of Saturday Night Fever for good measure. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. It's just like writing. John DeBarry. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, apt one. We were just saying that off air, but apt one for today's episode because uh, we're going to cover a drink that has been teased before by one of our previous guests. And you've been highlighted as the perfect candidate for the Midori Sour. But before we do, John, that's a cocktail that you covered in your first book, which published in 2020. And Midori itself is an ingredient which you've used in multiple cocktails in your new book, Saved by the Bellini, which is just pub- hot off the press right now. Is that Literally correct? Literally today. Today is a publication day. Today is a publication day. Well, thank you for yeah. carving out some time for us. Welcome course, to the show. You. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those drinks before we do get into the more, uh, not drinks, those books, sorry, before we do get into the Midori Sour itself? Yeah, of course. Um, so Drink What You Want is my first book. It came out in uh, June of 2020. Uh, so if you were had something else going on at that time, uh, I wouldn't blame you uh, for, for not noticing when the book came out. But that book was very much a sort of like a, a repository of all the things that I learned through teaching so many people how to bartend. I, I worked at PDT for five and a half years uh, and helped train people there, of course. But uh, my primary kind of bar job was working for Momofuku, where I was there for nine years. And I opened basically 10 restaurants over the course of that time. And so I had to learn how to teach people how to make drinks and how to think about bartending and how to not only just bartend and shake and stir and, you know, all that stuff, but also like train servers and managers and how to actually talk about cocktails and how to understand things really easily. Because I usually what would happen is that I would get like 
a day or two, like three days before the restaurant opened, like, okay, John, like, go, like, just go. <laughs> you have three hours, you know, to train everybody how to make drinks. And I'm like, oh, crap. So getting enough reps under my belt with that prepared me to write this book where it took all of the cocktail arcana and all of the things that people are very kind of intimidated about, like, oh, is this, can I use this? Am I going to get in trouble if I do it this way instead of that way? And like, I like this ingredient. Does that make me a bad person? And it's all those questions are like, it doesn't matter. Like you, you, it's called drink what you want. You know, it's <laughs> like, if you like it and you understand the reason why you like it and you understand your own kind of like contours of your own preferences, then that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. So that's what that book was all about. Mm-hmm. And sounds a lot like too, something we were chatting about off air, just like both through the, the title of the book and the content very much, you putting your, and I hope you don't hate me using this word, but like philosophy oh, when no. it comes to making drinks and no. drinking, <laughs> right? Like down on paper, everything you yeah. built up throughout your career and just putting that down. Whereas Safe by the Bellini maybe feels like a step in a slightly different direction, yeah. there, but very fun all the same. Yeah, exactly. And so to to go into the why the Midori Sour showed up in Drink What You Want, mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of, and I was the perpetrator, you know, of this as well, of just a lot of like judgmental kind of like, oh, like we're not going to make this drink because it's bad. Like we're, I don't serve vodka because it's like boring. And so I wanted to rehabilitate the Midori Sour and show that you can make drinks with liqueurs that are balanced and just as delicious as like a, you know, perfectly balanced margarita. It's just the sugar is coming from different places. So hmm. I, in the book, I actually have the Midori and the Amaretto, Amaretto Sour next to each other because it's the same recipe. And it's a three-ingredient drink. It's just the liqueur, egg white, and citrus. And it shows that, like, when you have a super sweet base spirit, which is your liqueur, you can just leave out the rest of the sugar that has to be in the other drink. And so it just is a way of illustrating that you really can make a good drink out of any ingredient as long as you're really thoughtful about why it's there. Smart. And so that was a way for me to sneak in, you know, like a <laughs> the Midori. <laughs> and I'd written about liqueur drinks and like Midori Sours and Blue Hawaiians before. Of a sort of like one of my fun things to do is to rehabilitate drinks that are kind of considered bad or, or liqueurs or ingredients that people think are, are tacky. And then with Saved by the Bellini... Um, you know, if you don't get the reference, like Saved by the Bell is a very iconic 90s television show. Um, and a Bellini is a very iconic you know, champagne and white peach puree cocktail. And so once I had that title, uh, the book basically wrote itself. Um, <laughs> the ch- and the, the thing for me with Drink What You Want was that it was very um, philosophical. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't object to that word at all. And it was very it was very a lot of existential questioning of like, what am I writing about? Whereas this, I was like, okay, I'm just writing a book about the nineties. Like this, like, do I like Jurassic park? Yes. How do I make a Jurassic park cocktail? Okay. Then, you know, then that sort of becomes very easy, but then it's like when working with the, the drinks themselves, I was all, all basically all these drinks, except for a few are like fully their own drink. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like a, just like, here's my version of a daiquiri. It's Mm -hmm. like, there's way, there's all sorts of weird stuff in it that like things that you would never necessarily put in a cocktail are there. When it comes to those drinks, um, I'm curious, maybe it's a case of both. Was it like, kind of like the book itself? Was it kind of like you came up with a name and you're like, okay, what drink would fit this name? Or was it maybe like you had some recipes floating around that you had in your arsenal and you were like, okay, what reference can I come up with for this? Or was it a bit of both? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a little, a little bit of all of, of column A, B and C. So, so example of like a, a sort of more straightforward riff is like, so there's a, the cranberries is this, the Irish rock band and they have a song called zombie. Mm-hmm. And so like, of course I'm going to put yep. a zombie riff in, 
in the book. And zombie is a very complicated drink, so I sort of made it a little bit more simple, and I used a grenadine syrup that has some extra fancy ingredients in it to make it sort of my own, but it still basically was just a zombie. Yeah. Um, and then another kind of entry point into a drink is, uh, so I was talking about Jurassic Park, and so the, the Jurassic Park cocktail is called Life Finds a Way. And it's a whey cocktail, so you basically nice, make ricotta, nice. and, <laughs> and then you use the whey in this sort of blended mango tropical drink that's like supposed to refer to Costa Rica, where the that's the setting of the of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, okay, I need to do Jurassic Park. The best pun for the Jurassic Park is life finds a way. So you need need to use whey and make it a Costa Rica kind of Central American drink. And so that's sort of like that. from that you then can put those pieces together in a way that's balanced and delicious, and then. Another way is like, sorry, not, no pun intended. Another way. <laughs> we is, love a pun here on this on this podcast. Do not worry at all. You're right at home here, John. Um, is like, so for instance, there's a, a clueless cocktail, right? And it's like, come on, like, it's like one of the most, like, the world is divided before that movie and after that movie. It was so good. And uh, I needed, I wanted to make, I wanted to see like, what were people drinking in that movie? You know, like, so I watched the movie. I did like a close viewing of Clueless on like, 10 a.m. on like a, you know, last year, like <laughs> February morning <laughs> uh, and just noticed all the things that people were drinking. And obviously they're drinking like alcohol at like a party. But then like she's drinking Diet Coke in a few a few scenes. And then there's also this like storyline where she's trying to set her teachers up with each other. And she gives her one of her teachers like a thermos full of coffee and says to her teacher that oh I don't drink coffee because it stunts your growth and I want to be six foot tall <laughs> but then you see her in the movie later her being uh, Cher Horowitz uh, Lisa Silverstone you see her in the movie drinking like mocha frappuccinos or something like that it's, it's basically like a Starbucks drink so it's, she actually does drink coffee so she's is she lying or is it a continuity error so I'm working with that and how to make a drink so it's like what's a diet coke and coffee cocktail that you can make that's good so I actually put together it's basically a rum and coke with like cold brew in it um it's kind of like a fancy diet coke cocktail which nice. sounds completely insane and unhinged but when you actually drink the drink if you were to sort of blind taste someone on it like it would like pe- people would wouldn't necessarily object to it on on any kind of like visceral ground but they would just be like wow you'd made a drink with diet coke that's <laughs> wild that's so good so that's sort of how those drinks all kind of came about mm-hmm. and you know as we mentioned up top there are two you know uh, midori features in this book as well so Heavily. if folks are if folks are maybe listening to this episode they don't own a bottle they're going out and buying one because they want to experiment with the midori sour mm-hmm. Uh, then they can go right out there and buy the book there too and figure out some other uses for it because I do think this is uh, something that comes up a lot in this show but like when you have those one cocktail bottles in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like one ingredient that only gets used for one thing, it can be a tough sell. Yeah. Um, sometimes the drink really does merit it. I'm thinking the uh, paper plane and no Nino and uh-huh. things like that, right? It's just like if you're only going to use it in one drink, it's absolutely worth it. But Midori, plenty of other options there, and people can go out and find that book. I'm assuming in all the all the usual ways. Oh, um, yes. Spoiler alert! It's, it's called Google, folks. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> or you can go to my website, JohnDeBerry. That's even better. Com. Well, I'm yeah. hoping that's the first hit there. But yeah, please yeah. go to JohnDeBerry.com, <laughs> search it out, buy a copy of each, uh, yeah. and and maybe yeah, dive into some Midoris we're going to do now, John. Yeah. Um, why? That cocktail specifically, you mentioned before that it was something that maybe during your your time behind the bar, uh, maybe kind of pointed to a shift in your own thinking where like you can reconsider these drinks that people think are bad or people might judge you for, uh, but also you can reconsider the recipes too 
did this particular cocktail like really stand out for you or is it one of many? Uh, well, I think that there, you know, when I was, when I, I, I became a bartender in 2008, which is like the kind of peak cocktail snob. Yep. You know, uh, and I was one of them. You know, I was that person who if you came into PDT and you ordered a whiskey and ginger, I would roll my eyes at you and I would be like, are you sure you don't look at the menu? <laughs> and then after I, I did it a couple times and I was like, wait a second, I can do less work and charge the same amount of money and the guy gets what he wants instead of me being a dick to him. Why am I doing this? And then eventually that just faded away and I realized that like if your drinks are good and you're making drinks well and they look cool when you're making them, people are going to come around. And if they're not, then they're never going to do it anyway. So you might as well just forget about it. Right. Um, and so that sort of was like I, you know, I could internalize that kind of snobbery and then I let it go pretty quickly. And, and PDT, you know, was was not the kind of place where we would like not have vodka, but it was very much like we we're encouraging people to like try the menu drinks because we because they're good and we want you to try them. But if you don't want them, no big deal. Um but there was still kind of like we didn't have Midori behind the bar. You know, we maybe had a, had one downstairs or like you know, it was kind of like a secret or like yeah. we had like Amaretto it was like tucked away in like a crusty bottle and no one touched. Um, and then Blue Curacao, we had like a, I think it was like a hidden bottle that we had to hide from Jimmy. And I think <laughs> I think that's actually like the thing. And so with my first awakening of like how can we take these like trashy ingredients and make them into like something that exists in you know just as valid alongside you know, a bacon-washed, old-fashioned, right? Um, I sort of included Blue Curacao in a cocktail on a dare, and it, like, went, and it sold, and it was actually, like, one of, it's still on the menu, and that was, like, 10 years ago, you know? So it's like, wow. like, oh, wow, like, these, if you actually just apply these ingredients in the right way, it's just as good as, like, using some, you know, old Weller or whatever. It's just, it's just another thing in your toolkit. Mm-hmm. So then that sort of like got me on my like liqueur journey, <laughs> so, so to speak. Um, and I, I'm, I grew up loving Japan. Like I majored in Japanese history in college. My grandfather was like this big East Asian scholar, historian. He taught, he was a professor for like 70 years. And so it's always been something that I was like really fond of, you know, and I spent a lot, not a lot of time there, but like I spent some time uh, there and I actually just come back from Japan before working at PDT. I was like going to live there at didn't work out but so this idea of like a japanese melon liqueur that was like sort of overlooked and considered to be kind of tacky and gross and too sweet and artificial and whatever really appealed to me and like okay how can i like turn this around like what's the what's like the the pr like rehabilitation Mm -hmm. i can do and so i just took a few tries i never actually got a midori cocktail on the menu at any place where i worked I don't think, no. But as I was starting to write, I was like, became, you know, basically I was my own cocktail bar. Like I didn't have anyone else to answer to in terms of like, you know, a boss or whatever. So I'm like, yeah. okay, well now I can just do whatever. So I wrote an article for Punch maybe like five years ago about the Midori Sour and the Amaretto Sour and the Blue Hawaiian. And I just had to figure out how to make this work and how to make it good. And you do the math on like the amount of sugar in the liqueur and then you're just like, okay, well then let's take it out from somewhere else and then add enough acid and then the egg white gives it, you know, a great like amount of uh, body and it sort of cuts a lot of the aromatics and makes it really palatable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was sort of how I got to the Midori Sour. And then I just like that became my like I was sort of I know that like uh, Morgenthaler has like an amaretto sour where there's a little bit of whiskey in it. Yep. And I love that that I love that recipe, too. But for me, it's like, well, how can you even pare that down even more? Even more. So this is like the core version of that. So that that spec applies to both amaretto and I guess any really liqueur you're thinking about. That's that's so fascinating. And I think also I had I you know, I had no idea coming into this also, you know, your connection there and interest in in Japanese culture. But it also 
I did think hearing you speak leading up to that, I did imagine, you know, starting this liqueur journey and, <laughs> and, and that new or, or, or different way of thinking. I mean, Midori, the Midori Sour, obviously it stands out because of first thing, right? The iconic color. Yeah. So maybe can you tell us a little bit more about just Midori as an ingredient for those who aren't familiar with it, right? I'm I'm saying it there. It's like neon green, maybe. I think neon's probably the right way to it's describe pretty, it. It's pretty, yeah. It's, it's pretty. Not an inac- inaccurate it's, description. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what else is it? What does it taste like? Where does it originate well, from? Well, it's a Japanese musk melon liqueur. Okay. So it actually, and, and, and believe it or not, they actually reformulated about 10 years ago. Oh. So I think it was a bit more kind of like artificially tasting. Uh, and then it, I think it was around like 2012-ish. Uh, they were sort of like, okay, well, let's try to make this a little bit more, you know, kind of approachable to like, you know, fancy bartenders. Because that's, you know, in like in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like cocktails were kind of had a different identity. And people didn't really have a lot of like kind of craft mentality towards it. Um, and so I think it, that was sort of was like a, product of its time in a way and then the reformulation i think i don't never act, i don't know if i've ever actually tasted the, the unreformulated versions because i i don't think i ever allowed myself to explore midori before you know about you know five or six years ago maybe mm-hmm. um but when i first started to taste it it was like wow this actually you know it doesn't taste like total artificial nonsense you know it actually tastes like good yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so like, let's work with this. Um, I bet there's some crazy bottle hunters out there now. Just, just I to, know their ears I, are they're pricking up now. Their ears and they're going, oh wait, there's pre formula uh, Midori from the '70s out yeah. there somewhere. Bottle hunters out there just being like, yeah. okay, I need to get my like, hands where, on like, where are you going to some like obscure liquor store in the middle of nowhere that just like has <laughs> yeah. it in their back room for yeah. the past forgot they had it twenty years. Yeah. Probably still good. It's the probably, amount of sugar that's in it. Yeah. Yeah, the sugar, the alcohol, yeah, I'm sure it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this made its way over to the U.S. in, what, the late 70s-ish? Yeah, from what I understand, I'm not, like, the biggest historian. Like, I I, I don't, like, hate history, but to me it's more like, what are you going to do about it now? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do love the association with, like, Studio 54, and it's, like, very kind of, like, that opulent sort of time in our in our culture, at least in, you know, kind of in New York, um, where, like, the idea of a bright green melon liqueur from Japan was like super exciting and you can imagine like Andy Warhol like <sighs> chugging a few with, a, with yeah. some quaaludes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I, I think the story goes that this that the Midori itself, not this cocktail, I'm sure it probably arrived a little bit later and um, uh, to your point, like especially for drinks like this, we don't really, there's not too much point in going into the history but apparently the, the Midori itself also debuted at that Studio 54 in the in the uh, launch party for Saturday Night Fever, which also does I feel... I do think that there's a good tie in yeah. there. Yeah. Also, I don't know, this is maybe a bit pedantic, but like the word Midori means green in Japan, Japanese. Oh. Yeah, so I forget that people don't know that. But I did not know that <laughs> yeah, at so all the, as well. So. Midori, like if it's like, that's green. Like, mm. so I, I also love that. Um, that's wonderful. Like Midori is not some, you know, arcane, you know, reference or something. It's just like, mm. hey, this is a green liqueur. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and look, another drink you mentioned earlier that I'm sure they would have been drinking and just pounding around this time, the Amaretto Sour. Mm-hmm. So it makes complete sense that someone would turn around and maybe like swap out one ingredient for another exactly. one, a new exciting one. So yeah. I'm sure there's probably some story there, one that everyone's forgotten or no one really know probably wasn't one first person to do it but a honed in dialed in version of this drink 
What are you looking for profile-wise? Where do you think it should land at Midori Sour? Well, this is kind of maybe a kind of a cop-out que- answer, but balance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you're, you're using uh, a really healthy amount of a liqueur that uh, has a ton of sugar in it. Um, but if you're talking about any other cocktail that you're going to make, that there has to be a certain amount of sugar, it has to come from somewhere. Um, and you might as well, if you're, you know, combine two birds with one stone and have the, have the spirits and the, and the sugar and the flavors come from the same thing, you know, just kind of compounding the ingredients. Um, and I think that there, you know, I, I have to, I have to kind of speculate that like the Midori Sour is probably developed using sour mix, which yeah. is basically just sugar and egg white powder and some level of citrus in, in some form, yep. depending on how good your sour mix is. Um, and not like fancy, like, you know, bar made sour mix, you know, that you can find now, but like real, like on the shelf, like preservative sour mix. So, so that it does have that egg white component like to it most likely so that the kind of airiness sort of cuts through a bit of the aromatic intensity as well as the sweetness. So that the, that kind of the space, like the foam creates air that creates space. So it's like a bit of a bigger drink. So you're, I think like a Midori sour, it's just Midori and lime juice or Midori and lemon juice probably is not disgusting, but I think that there's the, the egg white really is like what makes it and kind of like brings everything kind of more to life rather than just sort of like acidified yeah. liqueur. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert here because I, I know that there are versions out there um, printed in, in many different ways, but oftentimes you might see this cocktail, uh, the ingredients as being Midori, citrus, sparkling water, and vodka, right? And that that, that drink sure. ends up looking like a bit more of a, a highball than a sour, but it seems like you're definitely approaching this from a very literal perspective right. then when it comes to the name. So you're approaching it as a sour. Like a whiskey sour, like, like a, a true, yeah. Exactly. yeah exactly. Or a true amaretto sour. Now, if people want to hear about Morgenthaler's version, we've got that uh, back somewhere there in the archives. And you can learn about what bringing an extra spirit, especially one maybe that's a little bit higher proof yeah. to the sour, brings to that. So if you want to take that approach, we got you covered on that front, listener. But we're going to do your approach here today, John. So, <laughs> Although now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, it would be good with like a quarter ounce of, of like Navy Strength Gin. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Just to, yeah, something with a little flavor, but also some proof there. Just or like a cucumber region yeah Ooh, some, That'd be some, nice. some backbone maybe is that what that's bringing to it yeah i mean just a little bit of yeah yeah a little kick <laughs> um but before we move into the any of the other ingredients anything else you want to say just about midori in general because i know we've covered it in various ways up to this point uh well you know what i learned recently that there's actually like a whole like a bunch of line extensions in australia and there's like passion fruit and there's huh. like banana they're not called midori but they're in that like really iconic kind of like modeled bottle i don't mm-hmm. know how to describe the texture yeah. of the bottle yeah <laughs> but um yeah i was like i was hanging out with someone from suntory and, and he was like yeah, we've got like, and I'm like, hey, like, can I be the Suntory mascot for your entire world? And he's like, probably not. But do you want to know that there's like all these other liqueurs out there that are basically based on the sort of Midori kind of model, but they're like for other mm-hmm. flavors and they're only available in Australia, which is interesting. kind of messed up. Well, that's a good point that we did actually maybe gloss over that this is a Beam Suntory product. Yes. Um, and I think was 
I, I got this information from Wikipedia, and the Wayback Machine to the old Midori website is down. I think down. I've looked at that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a lot of misinformation on there. It says ABV, I think it's something like 4.5% to 25%. That seems like kind of a major reformulation, so that seems like an error. But it does say on there, again, we might be spreading misinformation here, which we don't mean to do, but apparently it was previously called Hermes um, Melon Mecure before it was rebranded as as Midorian launched here. Uh, I don't know whether there's anything just to do with geographical closeness that means that maybe some of those extensions might be more... Or maybe just the Australians love very vibrant yeah. uh, liqueurs. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I feel like we went through a very dry phase. Yes. Not dry in terms of no alcohol, but dry in terms of like people who were just really f- afraid of sweetness, mm-hmm. even though people like sweetness more than they think they do. Uh, maybe that never really happened in Australia. Or, so it just, yeah. or I don't know. But I, I feel like... They're out there just drinking flat whites for breakfast and then yeah. Midori's... <laughs> <laughs> banana yeah. liqueur for uh, yeah. Oh, you gotta love them. I love the Aussies. Um, all right. Well, I think that I think that's a nice little wrapping up the Midorian, a neat little <laughs> bow there. Yeah. Uh, and then otherwise, I put citrus here on the list because mm-hmm. I've seen various versions of this where uh, we're using both lemon and lime. Sure. Would that be your approach, or are you going for one over the other? I mean, I think uh, for me, like there's a certain beauty of the three ingredient. Drink. Yep. You know, just just like just to show people how simple it is and to reveal the kind of underlying structure of these kinds of drinks. But I love like a pisco sour with lemon and lime, mm-hmm. you know, so that definitely would work, you know, like mm-hmm. just, yeah, splitting it. You know, you could do other, even like Meyer lemon or yuzu or whatever. Like you got, I think you could, you could definitely play with the citrus. Um, I think that'll be super fun. And um, I, I I point that out too as well because like you said that, yeah, it works in a pisco sour, but definitely maybe not the classic version of that. To my mind, the only cocktail I could think of that uses a standard lemon and lime would be the Ramos Gin Fizz. Yeah, I get. I got. I haven't made. A, I haven't even thought about that drink in a really long time. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think. Yeah, I think I would definitely use an ounce of citrus. I think I would do lemon and lime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But if if you're if you're going down to one and, and and your approach, I do like that too. Just keeping a very clean three ingredient cocktail. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you go lemon or lime then for this? You know, it's like, I always get so, like, I feel like I'm living in a simulation when I'm trying to think about the difference between lemon and lime. Because, like, sometimes you can tell a difference and it's really, really noticeable. And sometimes you're like, are these just the same thing? <laughs> you know, I, definitely there's, like, different types of acids in those things. And mm-hmm. I think, like, the sort of apple malic acid kind of vibe of lime juice works a little better. Um, but I think it's one of those drinks where it's less about the aromatics from the citrus juice and aromatically... Um, Midori is quite strong, so it wouldn't. I don't think it's more about the structure of the getting the acidity to balance the sweetness. So to me, it's like the best citrus for this is like whatever you have on hand, as long mm-hmm. as it's not orange, because it's just a totally different, yeah. you know, profile. Uh, grapefruit. Eh, I think you would still need a lemon or a lime, but yeah. either of those two, I think would be would be would be fabulous. And I, and I think that I did lime in in, in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, maybe that's. Feels like, I don't know whether this is true on the actual like pH scale, but it definitely feels like lime is a little bit more piercing when it comes mm-hmm. to acidity than yeah. lemon. So that it's, makes I sense. I feel like there's a sort of superstition about lemon and lime. And it's just like, is it, you know, has someone done, like, I'm sure Dave Arnold probably has mm-hmm. done some, 
rigorous analysis of the difference between the two of these <laughs> citruses, but it's just sort of certainly. like, you just kind of have to feel it out. Yeah. You know, like it's like, you know, whiskey and lime is great, but whiskey and lemon's also mm-hmm. really good. It's like, why, why, you know, and like is lime and gin or lemon and gin, like they all sort of work for different reasons. Well, it speaks to, you know, it speaks to drink what you want, right? Like I, I feel like exactly. people are almost apologetic where they're like, look, I, I've got this cocktail that I want to make that's sour profile, but I only have lemon on hand instead of lime. Like, I know. should I be apologetic about the fact that I'm using lemon instead of lime? Like, yeah, no, I drink it. See if you like it. Yeah. That's like my, I'm like an online cocktail therapist. Like people will DM me and they're like, Hey, like, is it okay if I I do this and this? And I'm like, yes. Like, <laughs> and they're like, wow, thanks. And it's like, I just told you to do whatever you were going to do anyway. Yeah. Just don't feel bad about it. Yeah, making people feel good <laughs> about that. I think it's an interesting point too, though, right? And and you really highlighted that journey there where it's like, at least this is the, the journey that I had. And I think it maybe is true for a lot of people that when you start to get into drinks and you're like, oh, I'm going to take this seriously now, like mm-hmm. whether it's wine or cocktails or beer or everything, right? In the beginning when you start taking it seriously, you almost feel apologetic for everything. Like you have to, or like, oh, I haven't tried, I haven't tried all the bourbon in the world, but I like this one. Like, is it bad that I like it? Yeah. The more time you spend in it, maybe it's just because you get so fed up of hearing people like that speak or like, or maybe you're just like, no, everyone's palate's different. So drink what you like. But I think that's a really good way to describe where hopefully a lot of people kind of arrive in their own journeys. Yeah, it's like a confidence dip. You know, it's like you, if you don't know what you don't know, then you're really confident. Then you start to learn and you're like, oh, crap, like I, there's so much I don't know. And then you're feeling really bad about it. And then as you sort of learn more, it starts to kind of tick back up again. And the, definitely I've noticed that for myself, too, where I was very insecure and very like, you know, like, oh, I have to like conform to like what my you know, people who I consider to be better at this than me mm-hmm. think is good. And then uh, now I'm like, whatever, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was a very accurate and succinct way of putting into words what I was thinking about and was <laughs> talking around. It's like, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And then you do know what you don't know. And then ultimately, then you, and then you, then you, don't, you don't care. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a really nice curve. Yeah. There. Um, the, the, the bell curve is that? I don't know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, egg white. Fresh is best, obviously. Are you using fresh or are you using maybe alternative? Like fresh is best if you're using fresh is what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, it was funny. I was, I forget why, where I was doing this, but I, I you know, usually when you do call for an egg white, you just say egg white, like whatever. Yeah. It's like a standard egg white. And there's like some, I don't, I haven't done any sort of research on this, but there's some kind of validity to the idea that when a lot of these kind of old timey drinks were developed, like eggs were smaller. Yeah. We didn't have jumbo eggs. So the egg whites are like bigger. And so you should use like less egg white and like measure it out and put it in a squeeze bottle and make, you know, sort of, um, have a more like reasoned. you know, I feel like, I feel like milk and honey did this really well. They had like these sort of subtly egg white drinks that were like not eggy, but they were like, definitely had that like Mm -hmm. foam to them. And so one day I was trying to like figure out like how much an egg white actually is. And it was like pretty close to like a half ounce. You know, it seemed like it was more, but I was like actually really surprised by how small an egg white actually ends up being. Um, so uh, maybe that was just the one egg that I did and just I'm extrapolating all that data to like the hmm. entire world. But maybe that's wrong. But like, I think that like uh, egg white uh, should definitely be fresh because I think that there's a lot of um, since you're so much 
like it, not necessarily like in terms of volume, but in terms of like Structure. real estate in the drink. It's mm. egg, the egg whites kind of everywhere. And so, because <laughs> um, you know, have every all of the ingredients kind of wrapped up in this like airy matrix of, of proteins that like sort of is, it's like very in your face and you can have this kind of almost barnyard smell, which is why a lot of egg drinks have like a bitters over the top. So you kind of like are masking the sort of like- smart gamey kind yeah. of flavor, which I don't always pick up on, but I think definitely like if you're using an egg white that's been sitting out for a while, like it's probably not a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as long as it's sort of like refrigerated and reasonably fresh, I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Do the old trick, stick the egg in the water and if it floats, oh, it's is that... bad. I never, I, I, I don't say. Know. Yeah, I don't I know. I want to say, if floats, it's bad. If it sinks, it's good. Because it's losing, like, moisture or something, and so it becomes less dense as, losing, it's, as it ages. Yeah. Or it might be the other way around. I don't know. Google okay. it. But yeah. one of them's bad and one, one of them's good. Bad. And this is a former chef speaking with <laughs> apparently no experience there. Well. But, uh, yeah, one of them's bad, one of them's good. I believe the floating is bad, and it's to do with air uh, content. I, I, buy, I buy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, sure Uh, just faux science along with misinformation it's what we're known here at this uh, cocktail college for Um, so half an ounce you'd say is the is is the way to go when it comes to the old egg white or just a egg white you know an egg white but yeah yeah and and for me like I I I think it's in I think it's in drink what you want where I sort of like you know it's like standard cocktail book structure where there's like a primer and all the ingredients and I, you know, like the relative rates of like salmonella or other mm-hmm. forms of like foodborne pathogens is actually pretty low compared to other foods. Like spinach is much higher. Um, peanut butter is also very risky. So not very risky, but relatively more risky than, than hmm. eggs, than raw eggs. So it's like you know, flour, raw flour is raw and not safe to eat. Wow. Um, and so I've made and drank tons of egg white drinks or whole egg drinks and um, I've never really had an issue with like you know, some getting salmonella or some other no. form of illness from it. Um, and and the fact and if someone tells you that the alcohol kills it, that the, it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> unless you're drinking a sixty-one percent alcohol drink, then yes. But then you have other problems on your on your hands. Um, so don't be scared by the by the egg white. But you can do the aquafaba trick if you want. I've never really loved yep. that, but mm-hmm. I have very valid reasons for not wanting to consume eggs. Um, so. I, I wouldn't stop you. I, I haven't specked out a Midori Sour with Aquafaba, but I think actually the Aquafaba has this kind of green, like kind of grassy sort of mm-hmm. thing to it. You know, so I, it actually might be nicely compatible. That sounds good. With yeah, yeah, that, that tracks. So it could work. Let me know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, though. I'm taking away two things from that. I'm from here on in. Yeah, I'll probably start choosing to to measure my egg whites. And I think we've had a few guests on that talking about that before, too. But also just the bitters, right? Like, yeah, like if you if you do get put off a little bit by the the smell that can come from from egg white cocktails, from sours, the bitters, it's it's a great trick, right? Like aromatic on top. A little orange bitters or or Angostura in a a spray Mm -hmm. bottle. You're, Mm -hmm. You're good to go. Would yeah. you? What would you go for in this? In this, uh, I've been thinking about that. If I was going to put bitters on top of a Midori sour, orange could be fun, but it's a little. I think you know the Angostura orange is, isn't quite super. It's orangey as opposed to spicy, like like Reagan's. But mm-hmm. I mean, Maybe what about like fruit? celery bitters? Ooh. You know, like that's oh, yeah. yeah so overlooked as celery bitters they're so good especially if you're you know if you're used to knocking back green juice right you know you're you're familiar yeah. with it you know you got your melon in there your yeah. apple flavors or you know yeah or like i was celery. i was like looking at this there's like the scrappy i was looking at a couple of bottles of scrappy's bitters last week and there's like 
they had like a, a lemon, like a black lemon that was could Ooh, be good. Yeah, I've had and that. They had like a cardamom could also be mm-hmm. nice with with melon or even like a lavender maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This brings up something that I'm kind of keen to ask actually, and uh, it's based on a very recent experience that has nothing to do with today's topic, okay. but it's to do with bitters. <laughs> and it's a question for you. I'm not going to ask you to call out any brands. Feel free to if you want or not. Like that's not the point of this, but. I was in Charleston for the Food and Wine Festival recently, mm-hmm. and or Wine and Food Festival, and um, went for my standard order of a martini. And you know, a bartender asked, "Do I want orange bitters?" So I was like, "Absolutely." Made the drink, and on my first sip of the drink, I was like, "Ooh, I was like, I did, something's not right about this martini." Hmm. I know he's like, I did the spec that I wanted, and so I was like, "I'm not sure, like, what vermouth are you using here? Like, maybe there's some, you know, I'm like, I'll pay for this, but there's something not curious. quite right." Yeah. And he did that and, and made the drink again, tasted exactly the same. I drank it. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird, but whatever. You know, it's like a gin that I liked, a vermouth that I liked, huh. uh, bitters and a twist. A couple other places I had more martinis during <laughs> that visit at Charleston. I Hard didn't like work. it. I, just making sure, you know, doing the groundwork. <laughs> Every single one, I had that same experience. And ultimately came to realize that everyone was using Angostura orange bitters uh-huh. rather than Regan's, which I'm used to. Okay. I'd always previously assumed, like, look, these two things are interchangeable. Like, No. no I had no idea. So I, that's a very long and roundabout way of asking, like, do you have preferences then when it comes to bitters and, like, brands specifically matter versus, like, all orange bitters are interchangeable? No, absolutely not all orange bitters are interchangeable when... I was starting at PDT. We had House Orange Bitters, which mm-hmm. is an equal parts blend of, I want to say it's Fees and um, Reagan's. Mm-hmm. And Fees is very orangey and it's a glycerin based too. So it's really more about like kind of the, 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 the orange, like literal orange, and plus like a, it's kind of non aromatic bittering agent, like probably gentian. But the, Reagan's is, uh, it's from what I understand, like an archival recipe. So he basically found a couple versions and why it's like number six on the bottle. Oh, interesting. Um, and he's like sort of, it was like a TTB thing. I don't I forget, it's arcane, but um, an interesting, if you can find him talk, talking about it, which I'm sure it exists. Um, and it was very clovey. It's very aromatic. It's mm-hmm. like not like or- like a face full of oranges. So we we blended the two. I don't know if that's still being done, but for my entire time there, it's what we did. Um, and then I found Angostura orange, and I think that the Angostura orange is like is like the best balance of the two. Oh, interesting. So um, I like that. So I, I have a bottle of Angostura orange in my in my yeah. back, back bar. But I've I also when I started working at PDT, speaking of Hermes, uh, that they we had the Hermes bitters, the Japanese cocktail bitters, which are kind of orangey, like they're they're orange bitters, and I sort of long for that. That's interesting, Um, though. Yeah, no, I mean, again, one of those things I'd never considered, and and we're having the bitters chat, and it's been, I'm not going to lie, it's been on my mind for a little while now, so (laughs) I appreciate the expert insight in there, too, and just realize now, maybe I should start making my own bitters blends at home. Oh, it's so annoying. It's it's annoying. It's... (laughs) It's a lot of work. I mean, I mean, it's if it's I mean if it's fun for you, then that's what if that's, that's what I want to drink though, John. Exactly. You know, I'm not going to stop you, but it's like I think yeah. that like there's a certain it, it's again like the kind of confidence curve where you're like, oh, I could do a better job than so. Oh, not making not making bitters. I mean, just the blends. Oh, just just yes. fucking around no, with yeah. blends. Do the blend. The blend is the blend. Oh is yeah, no, I'm never making I'm not, your own bitters. No, I've, no, no, I've no, been no, a bartender no. for 15 years and I've never made my own bitters. No, John, yeah. I had a craft Coca Cola for lunch today, or not Coca Cola. I had a craft oh. Coke for lunch today. 
and it just uh, reiterated everything that I think about making your own beers. That's so funny. I actually, the craft cola reminds me of one, a, a failed drink from Saved by the Bellini that did not make it in, although I was sad that it didn't, is um, I wanted to make a, a version of Crystal Clear Pepsi. Which, nice. if you don't remember, they Pepsi released a crystal clear version. Uh, basically, from what I can gather, it was like everything except for the caramel coloring. Yep. So Pepsi is very kind of citrusy as a, as a, as a, as just normally. And then there's caramel coloring, which is used in very small amounts, but it affects the flavor in two ways. One, because it looks darker. So you taste, you literally, it affects the flavor uh, based on your sight. And then also there's a little bit of like caramel flavor from that, obviously. Um, and so it was very kind of refreshing, but it was cold. It was actually really delicious. And I remember the flavor of it. I remember like this awesome, like Van Halen commercial that I had, anyway. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to Calustian's and like yep. get all there. I found some old school Pepsi recipe with like magnesium phosphate or whatever it is that you have to put in there and like orange and clove and like cola and, and I was like, maybe I can do a thing where I can make a little, like, tell people to make a sachet of, like, these little dried uh, aromatics and throw it in some Everclear. And then you have this, like, cola base, and you can use that. And that'll be kind of brilliant. And you can make DIY, and it'll be this, like, genius thing. And it tasted like farts. It was so bad. <laughs> it was, like, disgusting. And I'm like, I'm not even going to try to do this again. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I, love, I love the intention, though. <laughs> Bringing back clear Pepsi. It would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. It was not going to happen for me. Oh, well. Well, we do digress. And I am going to bring <laughs> us back onto the course of the Midori Sour briefly here. Um, and I'm going to get you to commit to a recipe, if that's okay. Or, yeah. yeah. You can either go with the one you go from uh, Drink What You Like. Let me look or at my own recipe. So look at your own recipe. My, yeah, <laughs> properly. Yeah. We've had guests on here plagiarize themselves before and actually get it wrong, which is fine, too, because guess what, you know? Tastes change. It's true. Yeah. Ingredients change too. Ingredients do change. Yeah. Um, but if you if you're if you're an author or if you're ever going to be an author, take the PDF that your publisher sends you of your book and save it as JPEGs, and you can have it on your phone, and you can always look it up whenever you want. Also, that is some my of the pro the... tip to anybody <laughs> who has a cocktail book. That's wonderful. Also, so the the PDF files themselves can be kind of big yeah. too, right? Yeah, the JPEGs, the quality isn't spectacular, but you just need to be able to read it. Fantastic. Yeah. So I'm finding my my recipe here. Where are you? Oops, nope. Even more embarrassing than not remembering your own recipe is not finding your own. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so Midori Sour, uh, two ounces of Midori, one ounce of fresh lime juice, and one egg white. And optional garnish with a lime wheel. Nice. That's it. Shake, dry shake, you know, combine, dry shake, add ice, strain. Uh, I did chilled old-fashioned glass with ice for the Amaretto Sour. Sorry, I'm reading it. So I strain into, uh, oh, I did, did I not call for a glassware in the Midori Sour? That's really funny. You were able to revise history here, too. Huh, okay. Oh, I guess I just did old-fashioned glass for both. That's what I did. I just made, I just nice. made things simple for people. Do you like that? You like that approach then? The the old fashioned glass and the and the and the ice, or is it, like again, serving is that, it down? Yeah. Well, the Amaretto or, sour. I think the ice is nice for some reason. It just feels more correct. Yeah. But the Midori, I don't know. I think it has to do with sort of like the kind of like the almost like the color of the aromatics. Like you know, Amaretto is kind of brown and rich and syrupy and kind of honeyed, and so it kind of reads a little bit sweeter. So having having the ice sort of cuts out a little bit, but the Midori Sour has a brighter overall profile. So, um, so you're I don't think you that. necessarily need it. So you're either, it's either a big coupe or, a, um, or an old-fashioned glass, or even like it could be fun in like a little fizz, you know, a little fizz guy. Yeah. Yeah, so the glassware for me 
Um, I, I'm not so, so, so concerned about glassware for a lot of cocktails because it's usually like kind of unfair to be like, hey, can you have this very specific type of glassware? Because most people just have whatever they have and they, yeah. they should be able to enjoy drinks based on you know what's in their <laughs> cabinet and not feel not, not feel derelict and not having the right kind of coupe. Um, but I think I think a coupe or or like a, you know, one of those sort of like claret glasses. I don't even know if that's the right word for I it. I know the like one. This, yeah. Or literally the old, I think they're called. Like an absinthe it, glass even. That would be nice. There's that. There's one that that's shaped. It's kind of like a bell that's yeah. not a margarita glass, but I think that used to be a sour glass. Probably. Yeah. I think not so. a Nick and Nora. It's too small. Not, but, no. Yeah. 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 I think they used to call it a shower. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> search that one. John. Any final thoughts on the Midori Sour before we move into our final five questions of the show? Any final thoughts? Um, We've already used our drink what you want card. Don't knock it till you tried it. Don't knock it till you tried it. <laughs> nice. All right, then. Let's do it. Let's head into the final section of the show now with our recurring questions for our weekly guests. Beginning with question number one, John. What style or category of spirit or drink otherwise typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? I think I'm a liqueur guy. I think mm-hmm. if I had to say, because it's like, yeah, because it's like, you know, you have a whiskey and it's like sort of like you've got your whiskey covered, but it's like you need the full palate. Yeah. Also, you drink it less quickly, so it's like there's just more likely to be there still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had to open up my cabinet, it's very gnarly, but like it, it probably a lot of, a lot of, that's a great a lot po- of liqueurs. That's a great yeah. point. You can do many cocktails with one bottle of whiskey, but oftentimes, yeah, it's the liqueurs, they don't often do many drinks well. Yeah. It's the one. Yeah, nice. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I think hands. I think people, first of all, they don't wash their hands enough. They don't wash their nails enough when they're in photo shoots. Um, but I think that... Uh, <laughs> a peeve of mine uh and but i think that uh, people sort of they get really hung up on uh if they have the prettiest bar spoon or if they have the right type of jigger or if their shaker is from japan or whatever that it's like you sort of don't really realize how much power you have in yourself and your own kind of like able ability to manipulate the world so um it's fun to watch bartenders like kind of who know how to how to use their hands versus bartenders who are just sort of like working the tools mm-hmm. so you know you mentioned the zombies uh, the zombie zombie the yeah. cranberries earlier yeah I think for the longest time I was singing that as in your hands but it's in your head isn't it yes it is I've been yeah. uh, 10 years I was singing that song wrong for just in my head there's actually, a Bjork song ironically. called in your, it's in our hands so yeah. it could have been that <laughs> I don't know I was thinking about that because I think we did use that pun reference as well when we covered the zombie <laughs> on this show we like a pun as I said um, question number three what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry it's it was um, I it's I oh God can I give you two yeah. okay I'll do one is from Jimmy Ian, and it was uh, sort of in the kind of uh, in my confidence curve was sort of up on the upswing and so I was like kind of I was getting to be like sort of prominent and known and I was not just like some bartender who was trying to figure stuff out and I was feeling a little bit like bored and I was like oh I'm not busy enough like oh like should I be like doing this or that and and Jim was like you should work out like it's your job right now because you probably won't always have the chance to do so so um I always prioritize like exercise and like physical maintenance uh, of myself. And so because I know that if I have the chance, I should do it. I'm also very lucky that I enjoy doing it. But um, and then I also know that there are some weeks or some days where it's just not going to happen. And 
banking that time and like maybe I'll go to two yoga classes on a Sunday morning or whatever, you know, like that's just something that happens. Um, so that's very good advice that I think about a lot and not to feel bad about that either and not to see that as not to see that as sort of like a luxury or something but actually see this as, as like an investment in yourself and like especially if you're working in a creative field um or a, a field like bartending where you need to be in shape and you need to be able to move you know as well as you possibly can then that's actually very good to do and don't feel like you're being mm-hmm. luxurious um and then this is not necessarily uh, like advice, so to speak. But when I was working for Momofuku, I was talking to uh, to Dave Chang about this restaurant that we opened in Chelsea called Nishi. It's no longer open, very sadly, because it was a very good restaurant. Um, but we were at this meeting and we were just sort of talking about everything. And he just turns to me and he's like, John, I want you to make a cocktail program that is completely Italian but don't use anything that's actually from Italy. <laughs> and I was not that at the time I was, I probably should have been more scared than I was, but I was like, Oh my God, yes, this is per- I love this. And this, mm-hmm. it's instilled in me the cor- sort of like love of like fucked up, like limitations, you know, and, and yeah. how like the, um, like restricting yourself in kind of arbitrary ways can actually be like tremendously powerful and very kind of like productive in terms of like allowing you to explore creativity and giving yourself freedom within boundaries can because choice can be very paralyzing and going in any any direction is easier is harder than going in two you know so that made me sort of and then the drinks that I created based on that prompt ended up being some of my favorite drinks I've ever made in my wow. life and so that sort of made me just love to have like restrictions, which I think is also why Say by the Bellini was so easy to write for me because it was like 90s drinks, like drinks from about things, like, th- like things from the 90s that I love, make drinks based on that. And it was sort of like it wrote itself, you know, yeah. it was super, it just flowed out of me. So, um, so I, I value like sort of arbitrary restrictions as like a way of spurring creativity. Can you share one of those drinks from that time with us? Maybe one of your favorites there and yeah. Uh, let's see. I did this like really awesome sort of like daiquiri riff with this um, sh- uh, shochu that was made with black sugar. Uh, that's it, there's soju from Korea and there's shochu from Japan, and it was a sort of rummy kind of like um, white spirit that's like thirty ish percent ABV, and then there was this German kind of hibiscus liqueur that was really delicious, and I made this kind of hibiscusy sort of like. Not really very Italian, I have to admit, but like... Um, I was going to say that very famous Italian potential <laughs> cocktail <Yes>. there. <laughs> um, but it was so delicious. It was, I forget what, it, I forget what I called it. Um, and I also did like a sort of white Negroni Ooh. with like a saffron infused gin and um, I forget what it is about now, but it basically it was this sort of, this, and it, used, it also uses a black sesame shochu as well. So it had this like earthy kind of like thing and... Um, the name of it was like Shiro Negro, which is like a portmanteau of Shiro, which is white in Japanese and Negro, which is black in Italian. So it was like very much like an encapsulation of that restaurant in terms of like the Japanese take on Italian. Nice. Um, so yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That sounds like Very a lot specific liqueurs that probably aren't even on the market anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So amazing. Question number four, penultimate question today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? I think okay. So here's the here's here's my question about these. Like, is it the, am I visiting the bar and then I can't go to another bar for the rest of my life, or am I visiting the bar and I'm dying right afterwards? 
So I've always imagined this as open to interpretation from the person who's on the receiving end. And they've never, and, and generally speaking, people don't ask, but that's a great point. It can be either. It can be like, I'm only going to one last bar, but I can go as many times and as I walk want. Out and someone just cuts your head off. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, it can be that one of like, Yes, but you can go there as many times as you want for the right. rest of your life. Okay, yes. That's, yeah, that's a, another wrinkle to it. Yeah, because either way, it's Tonga Room in the, in the Peninsula Hotel in San Francisco because it's just such a, it's, there, it rains inside of a bar. Like, that's just, there's no, that's it. I'm sorry. That's, yeah. What more could you ask there's, for? Yeah. Yeah. So, Midori Sour. Sorry to all my rain. friends who own bars, but <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the Tonga Room. Nice. <laughs> all right. Last question for you. And again, Actually, no, this one is a lot more specific, just uh, re- reminding myself of it. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, right? what would you order or make? Again, is this a, I'm going to finish this cocktail and then I'm in the guillotine? Or is it like, I can, this is like it and then I can live for 70 years afterwards? Can be either of those. Okay. But I'm going to ask you, therefore, <laughs> to tell me whether you're ordering it or making it, because no one ever answers that part. Interesting. Um well, I think if it was gonna be if I if it was like the getting ready to go to the guillotine cocktail, it might it might be like a fancy champagne, you know, like something just like nice and just sort of like, you know, you have the kind of like very sensation of like a, you know, the very intense and just like delicious champagne as like your head gets chopped off, and that that sounds kind of nice. Um, if I had to keep living after the drink, I would probably choose something a little bit more like, or if it, if, or if it could be the only drink I ever be able to drink for the rest of my life, I have to pick one. It would probably be something a bit more um, like boring and refreshing. I, I just like I'm a huge fan of sparkling water, um, and there's this Romanian sparkling water that um, my dad's wife introduced me to a couple years ago, and it's so good and so like bubbly in a weird kind of very powerful way, and it comes in 1.5 liter bottles. And nice. so that's just like my like I just like I just, and I can just like crush an entire bottle of it in in two seconds. And mm-hmm. so like if I had to like if I had to live with myself after this drink, it would probably be one of those. Is it like a really one of those really salty ones, like a Gerolsteiner? It's or a, a little Vichy it's Catalan? a little Gerolsteinery. Okay, yeah, but not quite as intense. Not and a little bit softer in the bubbles. It's like kind of Pellegrino texture with Gerolsteiner minerality. Nice. Yeah, that one for the water nerds out there, <laughs> <laughs> John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank Likewise, you so yeah. much for joining us Thank today. You. And reminder once again, folks, support independent places to publish things. JohnDeBarry.com. Forget yeah. Amazon. Forget Google. You don't need any of those things. JohnDeBarry.com. Well, yeah, you can Say order. I mean, you can go. There's a link to my publisher's page where you can buy the book from wherever you want. Um, I would recommend this. Blue Stockings is like a, a queer bookstore in the Lower East Side that's right by me. And so BlueStockings.com, they have it. They'll, they'll ship it to you. You can pick it up if you live in New York City. Yeah, Amazon. Leave me a review on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, let's do, yeah, leave the review on Amazon. Yeah, just game the whole system, folks. You know, while you're at it, head over to the Apple Podcast page. Leave us a review. Yeah, leave us a five star review if you want. <laughs> anyway, John, thank you so much. It's thank been you. a pleasure. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news: every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. 
whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.